Sweet God, too. I just want to I want to close down 19 pubs with you guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't drink. <laughs> well, well, nor do I, but join us for a cup of tea anytime. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 78 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Avdi Grimm. Hello from the top of Mount Ararat. We also have uh, David Brady. Good morning and if the opening show quote was from me, I didn't say it. We also have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning from sunny San Francisco. We have James Edward Gray. Good morning everybody. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. We also have a couple of guests. We have Matt Wynn. Hello. And we also have Kevin Rutherford. Good afternoon. All right. So before we get started, we have uh, picked up a couple of segments. The first one is a contest that we're running. It's the Ruby Newbie. And uh, James is going to talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I just wanted to say uh, the Ruby Newbie uh, contest is over. We got all your submissions. Uh, we didn't respond to everyone. Sorry, we, we, uh, we did get them, though. Uh, and I'm putting all of the links into a gist, which we will link to in the show notes. So please just go there and look and make sure we did catch your video. If you don't see it in there, then fork the gist or something and add it uh, in case I missed it. But um, you should see your videos there and then give us some time to look through them and uh, debate about who is the coolest of them all. And we'll let you know. Yeah. And if you didn't submit, you feel free to go and watch them because some of them are kind of clever. So, all right. Um, yeah, yeah, and and just thanks everyone who did a video. I mean, like everyone who put the time into it, it was great. And, the, yes. and I, found, I found everyone worth watching. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. We also have best of parlay from Avdi. Yeah. So um, on our our uh, mailing list for listeners to the show, my favorite thread by far this 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 past week was a thread called Life After Pooter. Uh, somebody asked, uh, that's, that's life after, after, after practical object oriented design in Ruby, the book by, by Sandy Metz. Somebody asked, where do we go from here? What, what are the best ways to, to better improve our knowledge of understanding OO design, being skilled at changing one design into another and at writing high value tests? And a lot of people had some fantastic, uh, advice. Uh, Katrina Owen had some particularly, particularly terrific, um, posts in there. So totally worth checking out. Yep. One other thing that I want to mention, and you're probably going to get a short segment on Halloween or the day after, we have been nominated for the podcast awards. Uh, That's awesome. Yay! They're going to have a big uh, ceremony for the winners at uh, New Media Expo, and I'll, I'll be speaking there. It's in Las Vegas in January. Anyway, we need your help. You can vote every day, once a day, at podcastawards.com for the show, and uh, whoever gets the most votes wins the the nomination. So uh, go to podcastawards.com, uh, find Ruby Rogues, and uh, give us a vote. 
And, uh, you know, you guys are all Ruby programmers that listen to this show. So if we don't win by a landslide, that's actually sad because it means you guys didn't do your job of writing scripts to launch EC2 servers to get oh, new ideas. <laughs> and we are going to be incredibly disappointed. <laughs> okay, but, but actually, they, they have a lot of security measures in the voting and, and don't do that. <laughs> yeah, please don't cheat. Just go vote. Don't Ruby listen Rose. to him. If You're Ruby's really programmers. Our goal is to lose by disqualification. Get exactly. out there. Exactly. <laughs> Better to burn out than to fade away, right? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's really good for the show. It helps us out, and, and we really appreciate it. And and we're the underdogs in this fight. Yeah. So, I, Chuck, why do we have so many people with great accents on the show today? Uh, well, we had a request to talk about hexagonal rails, and, and so we got Matt on because he is the guy. <laughs> Naturally, just att attracts people with wacky accents. Yeah. <laughs> right? Okay, I have a question about hexagonal rails. Does it take a special kind of train wheel to ride on a hexagonal rail? That's a good question. No, just just bumpy. I want to know. <laughs> I want to know. Do I have to use hex paper to do my system architecture? You should use hex paper anyway because it's cool. Wait, who are you I'm, hexing? Definitely. I want to know what the movement class is of my easy to server. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Make it stop. <laughs> so, Matt, could you please define hexagonal rails for us? Well, that's interesting. So, I, I took the term from Kevin introduced me to the idea of hexagonal architecture. And uh, at the time, I wasn't really listening to him, as quite often happens. And then, a while later, I reread Growing Object Oriented Software. Because I was really sort of puzzling around, looking for ways to make my Rails app better, and so I kind of coined this term for a talk. Where so okay, so a definition. It's it's a it's about trying to it, it's it, trying to decouple the core, the heart of your application, the 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 bit of it that's interesting and unique, and decouple that and separate it or put what Michael Feathers might call a seam between that stuff, the the good stuff, and then the bits that uh, you need to be there in order to make it appear on the internets using Rails. I rewatched your talk at Gogoruko this morning and... Gogoruko. Huh? Oh, was go it Go Ruko? Sorry, my bad. Sorry, Josh. I didn't mean to, you know, improperly credit you there. Um, yeah, don't give Josh any credit he doesn't deserve. Yeah, that's I, Josh, <laughs> I don't understand why this great talk wasn't at your conference, but we can discuss that later. <laughs> I rewatched it, and I really liked the part where you talked about how at, at one point you're showing how the controller has this intermingled logic, right? You've got the logic of your domain in there, whatever businessy things you're doing. But then you're also talking about how there's the logic of the the web stuff, right? Let's redirect yeah. here or let's render this page. Yeah. And you talked about how those might need to change at different rates, you know, the webby stuff and the and the businessy stuff and why you were separating those out. I thought that was really great. Yeah, I I think it's something that I've learned from... So I've known Steve Freeman for a long time, 
and uh, he's, he's one of the authors of uh, of the Goose book, and you had them on a, a few weeks back. And uh, Steve's really big on this idea of not mixing up domains. So every object uh, should sort of, but you should be clear about which domain it's operating in. And I think you see it a lot with Rails controllers that they're they're doing lots of different things, and they sort of attract lots of different behaviour, and it makes them yeah complicated, and and you know they just become these kind of magnets don't they for just extra behavior just keeps kind of getting slapped into the controller actions because you can't really see where else to put it so is, is is this the architecture that alistair coburn talks about with ports and adapters and stuff i'm yeah they're yeah, synonymous um, his original name for it was hexagonal architecture simply because the first time he he drew the picture of it he drew a hexagon but then on the C2 wiki, he actually uh, said that he thought that was a stupid name, and he and he changed it to ports and adapters. But I always I always stuck to the hexagonal one because I found that people kind of latch on to that picture more more readily. It's it's more accessible for people who don't know what it is. So a more succinct definition of what hexagonal rails is, is it's really uh, the attempt to apply Alistair Coburn's idea of a ports and adapters or hexagonal architecture in a rails application. That's, that's, the, that's what it's about. All right. So yeah. I'm, I'm still not clear on uh, what the hexagonal architecture is and, and the problem it's trying to solve. Can, can you boil it down a little bit further? So... Back in the good old days, we were all taught that um, layered architectures were a good thing, and we were all beaten up if we didn't have a three-layer architecture um, separating the user interface from the business logic from the persistence layer. But Alistair recognized that the, there are two things wrong with that. One is there's a fundamental asymmetry in it, because being a stack, it tends to, uh, it tends to cause downward dependencies, and we tend to get applications that are stuck sitting on top of a persistence layer or a database or whatever that, that that we can't change and what that means is that that asymmetry sort of bubbles bubbles up all the way through and, and what matt was talking about earlier on in the in, in controllers is kind of a symptom of that that the dependencies on the database, the ORM, whatever, bubble up through the layers. And so Alistair said, enough, um, let's put the symmetry back. Let's make the domain model the center of our world. And let's focus on that as being the most important thing. And the objects in there should be independent of any technology. They should they should be independent of any real world concerns. And in order for them to communicate with the real world and for the real world to communicate with them, we we should surround the this domain middle with a bunch of adapters. So an adapter for HTTP, an adapter for email, an adapter for persistence. Whatever, whatever the sort of technological concerns are, or the real-world concerns that would allow the rest of the world to interact with those domain objects, stick those in thin adapters around the outside. So Alistair's picture was a, a hexagon in the middle which contains your domain objects, and a larger hexagon around that, and in the gap between the two hexagons, a series of adapters that connect 
the domain objects to the outside world. Now that's kind of just moving deck chairs on the Titanic until you also add the stipulation that the adapters must not be known about from inside the middle, from inside the domain. So the domain must have no dependencies that go outwards. So I think I can give a pretty good real-world example of that that comes up a lot. I mean, you guys have mentioned the controllers, and obviously they, they tend to be like a junk drawer. But one of the, the things that used to be really popular, and I think it's finally getting unpopular, uh, which is a good thing, is that um, in an active record model, we used to do like after create callbacks to send the email, right? Mm. Like you, oh yeah, you signed up, so here's your uh, email about you know our welcome email or whatever, right? Or your thing was created, so here's your receipt, you know, or whatever. The uh, and that that turns out to be pretty bad, right? And you feel it the first time you go into the production console and you're mucking around and you want to create some record that, <laughs> but without sending the email, right? It, you run into it and it's that those things are now irrevocably tied together, you know, and you have to jump through hoops to do that, whereas they're, they're separate things that shouldn't be, you know, tied together. Yeah, so you've created dependencies in the wrong direction from your domain logic out into technology concern. And that means you can't change the technology without breaking that dependency or changing that dependency. And if you get the dependencies in the in the correct direction, i.e. coming inwards, so the adapters depend on the domain objects and not vice versa, that means you can switch out the adapters and replace them with different ones, which is really useful for testing, of course. And the the main thing about hexagonal architecture is that it just brings that simple idea to the forefront. The idea that whenever we're testing our, our code, we always switch out the ORM. We switch out the, the, the mailer technology or whatever and replace it with stubs or fakes. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the key drivers behind the, the architecture, right? As, when I read his original paper is that he was working with yeah databases which were making his test suite slow. So they were using Fitness, where we might use Cucumber today, and also with GUIs, sort of rich client GUIs that they just couldn't automate. So the idea of the the adapters was that they could plug in the tests as another client of the application, just the same way as they plug in the GUI. And it had this nice side effect that they could also plug in uh, in-memory databases instead of disk-based databases that made the test runs much faster. And actually, that is something that, as Rails programmers, we could definitely benefit from. I mean, who's you know who here has suffered from a Rails code base with slow tests that depend on a database? Any, anybody? That never happens. Never. No. No. Who uses a database anymore? <laughs> yeah, I use a spacerbase. So, so is is this what um, what you call dependency inversion? Or, you need or is... it to, to you need it to implement it. Yes, you you okay. need to you need to invert uh, any bad dependencies that are going outwards from the middle. So quite often the the domain objects will want to send messages out um, to the ORM or or to the user or to the emailer or whatever, and you have to use dependency inversion to do that. But that doesn't mean using a dependency inversion tool or any of that nonsense. It just means 
using duct typing or interfaces so, if you're using a static language. I have a question about that. One of the most common ways I see dependencies going outwards is when something in the domain logic needs to know something about the current session. You know, most often probably want, needs to know something about the current user, who the current user is. You know, if if the current user is that if the current user matches this other other user, then do do you know do logic A? Otherwise, do logic B. And uh, but sometimes sometimes other things about the session, like uh, you know, what is the current socket ID for for web pushing WebSocket notifications to the 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 current user that's that's looking at this controller right now? What are what are some of the strategies that that hexagonal architecture suggests for dealing with that? Is it my turn, I th- Kevin? Uh, yes, it is. It's too hard for me. <laughs> I, I want to see the scoreboard uh, they have up so in there. I think I think the thing is 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 when you when you get into this idea that there's a there's a core part of your application that should try you should try and keep it pure. And if it needs to be able to talk to something from the outside world, whether it's to ask it questions like who is the current user or uh, what is the idea of the WebSocket we're we're talking to, um, then you need to pass that stuff in. So you're making the dependencies explicit. I think it adds a lot of clarity to the code. So you're you're because what what I see a lot in Rails apps. I think partly because um, we're so used to having the generated Active Record models sitting in the root namespace, we get all these hidden dependencies on because effectively, like if you create a, a capital U user class. That inherits from active, active records. That is a global variable. The constant user is a global variable, and everywhere you do, you know, I don't know. So I guess it would be unlikely that you'd set user dot current, but people do things like that, right? And and but every time you're calling user dot find by name or whatever, you're you're you've got a dependency on that global variable. And those dependencies can get kind of scattered around. It's very difficult to see uh, where all the calls into that user class might be coming from. And I think if you get into this idea that you, if you need to call an object, you have to pass a reference to it in, then it's, it just starts to make your code clear. It's easier to see where the dependencies are. It's easier to see when you're adding dependencies and coupling into the code. So this also comes back to what you were saying before about... about uh simplifying the controllers and getting the getting the domain logic out of them and pushing that down into um into a a different namespace or into into different objects that don't know about the fact that they're being dealt with from an http request and pushing that logic out forces you to create that api and forces you then to give give explicit names to all of those things in that API, which definitely benefits readability and program understandability. But it also has other benefits as as well. For example, it, it starts to allow you to write, for example, rake tasks that can do the same thing as your controllers, which means that your rake tasks become another adapter mm. sitting on top of your domain object and and doing stuff through that API. Yeah, and I've so actually found as well you can you can be doing things in an IRB prompt in in a in a Rails console. Sorry, um, that 
are the kinds of things that the controllers can do, but because the controllers are very lightweight and just delegating to to the domain model, you can sort of pick pieces from the domain model and be doing those things from the um, from the console as well. So I have to ask then, it sounds like you have domain models and then what what we consider active record models as kind of two different things. H- how do you manage the interplay between the domain models and the and the persistent persistence models for lack of a better term do you do you ever blend them so that they are the same model or do you have a strict separation there so i'm going to say and i said this in the talk i'm i i haven't got like the answer to this at all i'm figuring this out and in the code base i'm working on in the relish code base most of this is still a mess i've still got these big ugly active record models that i'm trying to kind of it's like it's like they're sitting on my lawn right um, having a party and i would really like them to go away and sort of go to the back of the garden and um, because they're making a mess but they're kind of there and i've got to deal with them you know um it, they're sitting there right in the root namespace of my of, of my um of, of my, my my code that's one of the things that annoys me the most actually is that i've got this user class that's squatting the the root namespace and actually i'd much like much rather have a plain old ruby object that's my user class um, but unfortunately, the active record model is is right there. So I think, without trying to wheedle out the question, I haven't got a clear uh, strategy for it. I think Kevin, you you've been talking about the sort of the memento pattern, haven't you? And having the active record models as simple as possible, and really just concerned with modeling the database and then putting all the the other behavior elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we we kind of discovered this, didn't we? When we did this talk at Scottish RubyConf, we 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 got a lot of feedback from people who who um, who wanted to try different ways of separating out the active record from from the domain logic, um, but nobody yet has. As a community, we we haven't established conventions for doing that, and I think in the next twelve months we will see that happen. And one that uh, is certainly a favourite of mine at the moment is the one that you mentioned, Matt, on, I think, Avdi's mailing list last week. The idea of explicitly creating a domain object to represent the repository of your user base, let's say, and having methods on there that allow you to, to get users back. But the user objects that you get back are wrappers for the active record objects. So, again, if you think about the dependencies, inheriting from active record base creates a dependency going outwards, going going towards the ORM and therefore towards an adapter, a technology adapter. That means that the user object, if it if it is an active record object, can't be a domain object. It can't be in the middle in a in a strict sort of interpretation of the hexagonal architecture pattern and that's part of that's part of the reason why rails apps get into such a spaghetti mess because that object depends outwards on active record and yet we'll see it pop up all over the domain and up into the controller as well we're not managing the dependencies in a way which allows us to switch out concerns easily so my preference at the moment is to have absolutely no logic in the active record models whatsoever and to have a repository object sitting in the domain which manages 
the finding and and creation and, and deletion of those things and wraps them in a domain object that the rest of the application uses to represent, yeah. say, the user. The, yeah. okay, the nice no, thing I, about I, having I, that. Guys, guys, I, I want to jump in here. I've been, I, I, I've, uh, I've been, I've been good and quiet most of this thing, but, uh, but I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm next. I, yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to jump in so, too. So, so go, but go ahead. So for the last year, I've been hearing a lot of people talking about doing exactly what you're saying. We're basically uh, demoting Active Record model classes to being merely persistence and taking all of the logic out of them that you can and putting your business object object or business logic in in you know like pure ruby objects your or plain old ruby objects and and i have to say that um that while that sounds lovely in in some regards you're not doing active record at that point and if you're gonna go to all the trouble to to do that use a different orm or, or, just, or, you, or go with or, active model, yeah. Yeah, or, or just like use some other technology. It just seems like there's there's this uh, very difficult impedance mismatch that 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 you're now putting on top of something that's already an impedance mismatch, you know, between objects and relational technology. And if if you want to go that way, you know, invent a different ORM that works the way you want it to work, or or do something else. But the I've I've seen all of this. Uh, you know all this stuff where people are talking about doing this, and 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 it's a it's a it's a valid response to real problems that people have with using Active Record in a certain way. And but I don't I don't yeah. really find Active Records a pain to use for getting things in and out of a database. Like it's it's good at doing that. Um, I just feel uncomfortable when it keeps on sort of sucking in, hoovering up all the other domain logic. So. As an API for querying databases and uh, persisting data off into databases, it's fine. It's it's good at that. But it, like the stuff that uh, James mentioned earlier on, you know, when you start using callbacks to manage uh, other events and and things, it just yeah. I mean, I know what you mean because that is the active record pattern, isn't it? It's, is yeah. <laughs> you make your domain objects also be persistable. Mm-hmm. Right. There's but but also the the original definition or description of the active record pattern says very clearly, as soon as you have any interesting stuff going on, stop using active record. And uh, well, let's be clear that the Ruby's act, or Rails's active record class has about seventy percent to do with the active record pattern. They are wildly different things. The other sure. thing yeah. I want to point out that that Kevin's kind of mentioned here just for a second is that. Yeah, as soon as you have something interesting going on, yeah, peel it out. And you know, so if yeah. if I have a user and then I find that I am taking care of some other uh, concern or job in there that doesn't really fit with what the domain logic for a user should be, and whatever that responsibility is doesn't necessarily require persistence, then by all means, you know, move it out into a domain model that's a plain Ruby class. Um, you know, if you need some of the active model behaviors, you can pull that in. But, you know, ultimately, you know, I, I don't think it's an all or nothing proposition here. I think it really just comes down to what makes the code most maintainable, readable, uh, usable, workable, that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I think that's right. And I think as a community, we're all, we're all still exploring uh, yeah. what to do here and how to get this right. And I don't think anyone has uh, the answer yeah, but you Yet. don't you don't feel the full pain of your experiment until you take it all the way, and 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 so I think there is some value in building a project where you 
fully divorce the domain logic from the persistence logic just to see where that hurts and then see if you can find a proper uh, middle ground that that fits the problem that you're trying to solve. Well, I yeah, think there I think could be right. some there could be some agreement between Matt and Josh in that you know the impedance mismatch can be kind of represented by the fact that how did Matt put it that, that active record starts hoovering up the rest of your 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 domain. I actually want to take Chuck's question about you know how do you do this and simplify it if uh, so I think it's fair to say that most of our listeners are smarter than me and I'm having trouble with actually flowing the code. You've talked about inverting the dependencies. You've talked about, you know, you, you know, decoupling these things. And I've worked with systems where the controllers were almost completely empty. And and I do have this memory of being able to open the Rails console and stuff just worked. You could just grab something and manipulate it because there was nothing in the controller large. Absolutely lovely. I wonder if if one of you could just take a moment and just walk us through the flow of of the port and adapter or of the of one side of the hexagon let's take you know our user maybe it's capital u user or maybe maybe it's it's coming from somewhere else but let's say i want to save this user and he's got some attributes uh, on him that we want to save and there's a database off over here somewhere and i've got this library that can talk to the database instead of inheriting from active record and telling the user to save what are the ports and adapters what things do i have to plug in and what things do they have to give each other uh, via interfaces explicit or duct typed uh, can you could just can you walk through the flow of saving an, a, an object so that because we do have some newbies that listen to the show and i know that some of this is going over their heads because i'm having a hard time keeping my my fingernails uh, clawed into it but i think if you could sketch just one interaction in you know in and back again that it would make it clear does that make sense yes yeah. it does and i and i think i i, I think for me I, I don't know about you matt but i i would start i would back up a bit and ask why the user is being saved so let's imagine we've uh the the user has edited his profile let's say let's say we've got a use case where mm-hmm. uh the user can edit their profile so they've sure. come in through um an edit form and they've now submitted that form. So we're into the whatever whatever controller we've called it. Uh, let's say it's the user's controller or the profile's controller or, or whatever. And uh, let's imagine that in our in our middle hexagon in the domain, we have a user base which will find the user for us, find the user object. So user base is a collection of users that will will find us this user. Yes, so it's okay. so it's the it's the domain abstraction that represents all our current users. Okay, okay. I was just clarifying that it was not the user base class. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry base class in object or you know base type. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, user base is the collection of users. Gotcha. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. So so rather than the rather than using the user class at, to be that collection, we'll we'll have something else that's separate. Okay. And the object it will give back to us will be a user object, which hidden deep inside it will have some reference to uh, an active record object. Let's okay. call it user data or something like that. So the use case is an action on that user object to set, set its profile to something new. And I'm not sure I would have an explicit save visible to the controller. Hmm. 
I think setting the profile would be a persistent activity that would be hidden inside the user object or even the user base object. Okay. And so the controller would simply arrange to invoke that action on, say, the user base or the user, whichever we chose, okay. and arrange to be notified of whether it succeeded or failed, either by... I, my current favorite way of doing that is to pass in procs. But I know, Matt, you've, you've done a lot more work with callbacks. Perhaps you can go through that. Let me, let me try an idea here. I, I think I sit somewhere kind of in between Kevin and Matt and Josh in like the strategies I'm currently trying. So what, what I've taken to doing, like I, I believe like Josh a little bit in that, you know, Agile Record's good for what it's good for. So just to give an example, if I had a user and they had a first name and a last name uh, field stored in the database, then it makes perfect sense to me that the, the method full name would be on that user because it's basically just a synthetic field that just doesn't happen to be in the database, right? It, but it is still there. It is still a field of that, that thing, right? And so, so the taking everything out of the model doesn't make sense to me, right? Because you still have certain things that make sense to be in that persistence adapter, which, by the way, is the difference in how I view it. I view the class that Rails creates for me, the class user that inherits from Active Record Base, I view that to be my adapter between yeah. me and the persistence layer. And I treat it as such. So my current technique is that I can put whatever I want on that user class that is basically like a class method. And that class method can then, you know, bring up instances and manipulate them or whatever or return them to me. So basically what I'm trying to stop myself from doing is, you know, the horrible feature creep you get with the user class, which has like 500 instance methods on it for doing all those things, right? So I might have a class method on user that was update profile to stay with the same example. And that method may, uh, you know, take an ID and, a, and then the hash of profile changes or something. And it may find the user for me, uh, make those attribute changes, try to save. Like Kevin said, I'd rather have the controller not doing that. Yeah. And that, that method is my adapter to that, yeah. to that thing. And then I don't pile on the instance methods, I just go through those class methods so that the user class object kind of becomes my service sitting on top of that, if that makes so, sense. So I think that's, that's basically how I do it as well. I think the difference is I, I would probably wrap the user class with another object so that the that behavior is in a, in a separate object so I can clearly see, if I ask that thing what its methods are, those methods are all methods that belong in my domain rather than them being mixed up with the methods that are provided by Active Record. So I haven't got the sort of temptation to call, you know, oh, well, sod it, I'll just call find by email and username or something like whatever the, the provided Active Record methods are. There was something in uh, Avdi's book, I think, about Active Record being an infinite protocol. 
which I really liked that idea and, and that having that infinite protocol kind of leaking out into the rest of your code base. I, I, yeah, I just find it a bit scary, but maybe it's my, my C-sharp background. I think I see where you're going with that. Like, and, and I do understand the reason to have the, the separate class, but then I find that I find myself tripping over things like, I just want to hand this object down to a form for a tag. And I don't want to have to implement all the active model scaffolding between my my object that's hiding the user from me when Rails already does all that for me. Does that make sense? Right. So, right. so, so the here here's the thing that that I've I've been thinking about during this conversation, and that's that uh, you know when we the a, a lot of the conversations we've had in the last couple of months about this kind of stuff address the fact that. Object-oriented design and the patterns that we use are there to reduce the cost of changing code. You know, c code that you never have to touch again. It doesn't matter how complicated and unwieldy it is. You know, we can call it an Omega mess, like like Sandy Metz named it, and not worry about it. But but we need to use design to have the code be something that can respond to the changing requirements on it. And over the life cycle of a piece of software. The, as the requirements change, the demands on the design changes. So, yeah. you, know, you know, Matt, in your talk at, at Garuko, you start off by saying, "Hey, you know, we do, you know, Rails new change the world," and that, you know, and it's a great start, and it keeps you happy for a while. And then, as as things change and your software gets more complicated, then you need to start using different approaches to make the software tractable and yeah. and and keep it. From becoming calcified and unwork unchangeable, the, so the the big question that I have about the hexagonal rails approach, just like I have with with many of these other higher level architectural approaches, is when is the right time to start worrying about these concerns? You know, obviously Rails New Change the World works just fine, and you can spend you know your first month or several months working on a project very easily without having to go to great lengths to worry about how expandable your architecture is. So what so like what from a practical point of view, when do you have to start worrying about this stuff? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because uh the the experience I talked about there is is this one where um like it's so much fun when you first start working on the application and it just sort of gradually starts to creep up on you. You know the the test run goes from like three minutes to five minutes to ten minutes, and then it's fifteen minutes. Right, but but uh, but on the other hand, if you started by building everything as ports and adapters, then then there would be so much overhead in getting anything going that you would never get started. Well, and certainly at the moment, because we don't know how to do it. But yeah, I, I think, think that's the thing. Like, we, we're, read... we're still norming, aren't we? We're still looking for ways to 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 solve these problems. And so when, because we, we don't have the answer yet, then it's, it's not going to be easy because everyone, everyone in the world is at the bleeding edge. That, I think that is part of it. But, the, but I, did, I'm, I seriously think that there is a point now in, in that, uh, that thing from Kent Beck's uh, blog post about, I forget the, the terms he used now. So it's, about, it's from the, the flight of the startup and he talks about a modular architecture and a connected architecture. And a connected architecture is one where kind of it's like it's like you're in a workshop and you've got all of the tools just kind of 
splayed out on the floor. So, you know, you need a screwdriver, the screwdriver's right there by your hand, just pick it up. You need a hammer, it's over there, it's just here. You need the saw, it's just down there where you just put it down. And that's fine, like, if you're just in the workshop for the afternoon. But actually, if you're in there every day and you're doing different kinds of work in there and, you know, sometimes you're working on machinery that needs spanners and sockets and then sometimes you're doing soldering, you have to sort of tidy the workshop up. And so the connected architecture is great when everything's sort of to hand and, and you can just lay your hands on it. But when things start getting bigger, I suppose, it's when you, that's when you need to start organizing them. So I don't really know what's a, what's a good rule of thumb. But, yeah, speaking from experience, I suppose when your test run starts to get more than about six or seven minutes, you want to start worrying. Wow, six or seven minutes is when you start worrying? <laughs> Yeah, I worry, I worry sooner than that. You have a higher threshold than me. Yeah, seven <laughs> seconds is the Twitter Twitter threshold. Yeah, wow. yeah. If the suite takes longer than seven seconds, I check Twitter, and so Wait, that's a pretty hard line. Does boot in seven seconds? Yeah. I don't think it does. No, no. <laughs> Spork is more it, important than Ritalin on my project. In, in small talk best practice patterns, Kent Beck had a number of hard numbers that he used You know, for you know, the rules of thumb, but he made them hard and fast rules in, in his recommendations of, you know, don't use this more than three times in a project. You know, if you're doing this more than, yeah. you know, f five times, it'll get you in trouble. So, you know, at least in, you know, in, in looking at, at those kind of, of uh, problems, Kent was able to come up with some pretty specific recommendations about things. So I, I guess maybe over time, you know, we should be able to do the same thing with okay. Well, when you have more than twelve models, you need to start worrying about this kind of thing. Or when you have, or if it, if it's not the the classes, if it's the protocols and the interactions, and you say okay, if you have, if you're if you draw your graph of models and and dependencies, it, you know when the c connectivity of it gets over a certain threshold, then you have to worry about it. I don't know. If I think in general, that would, that would be the thing. Wouldn't it be the number of method calls, the number of, of calls across the protocols? Wouldn't it? I think. Sorry, Kevin. Carry on. I, I was going to say exactly the same thing. It's it, it's it's in general being aware of code smells when you're introducing duplication across your controllers. When you've got rake tasks that duplicate controller logic. When you've got models that duplicate logic, then it's time to start refactoring. And I think certainly for me, hexagonal architecture is something to refactor towards rather than something to start out with. Yeah, I, I really think that's the most important thing you've said right there, Kevin, is um, I read a great article the other day about how if you give a kid a big uh, tub of Legos and tell him to build something, uh, almost always one of the first things they do is spill all the Legos on the floor, right, or the table or whatever, and they're they're looking at all the pieces and their, their options and their given ideas and stuff like that. And that what Matt talks about with, you know, Rails new change the world and you start with a fresh app and then you just start kind of wiring some pages up. You know, to me, that's like spilling the Legos on the floor that you're looking at all the pieces, you're trying to figure out, you know, where this connects, where that connects. And that yeah. I, I couldn't even do a good ports and adapter design at that point because I don't know. Right. I don't know what's going to end up you know, over here or over there. And and it's, I, I agree that it's something I, I want to play around with. I want to get the app up on legs so I can poke at it a little and see what's going on. And then, 
as I cross that threshold, now I'm like, okay, I know what this part of the app is, so let's tuck that behind some better interface. Yeah, that, that's the same. That's the same point Paul Dix was making on the on the service orientation episode about you don't want to build everything as services right off the bat because it slows you down and it and it makes your app more brittle than it needs to be while you're while you're figuring out what it actually needs to do. Right. What so what on, strikes me is that it it's an outgrowth of explore because you're exploring a problem, and so when you're exploring solving a, a domain problem, you just build whatever it is that you have with the tools that you have. And then when you start to explore the complexity problem or the, the timing problem or the, the length of time it takes, then that's when you start exploring, okay, hexagonal rails or SOA or whatever to make it work in that way so that it, it solves that issue as opposed to does it do the right thing. I think it's maybe also when you're coming in to change the behavior of existing classes. Because one of the things Nat Price talks about is that uh, you shouldn't really ever have to go back in and change an existing class that you've written. What you should be doing is just plugging that into some other bigger concern. Um, But of course, you know, we're so used to doing it, aren't we? That taking an existing controller and just like extending the code in the action or taking an active record model and just adding a bit more behavior. And I think it's it's when you start changing and extending the behavior of the app. That's what that because actually, like if you just you know create some bits on the periphery of your application that are basically just turning the date, displaying the database on the web, surfacing the database over the web so you can modify it, and you're never going to have to go back and change that stuff. Like, why would you need a fancy architecture for that? It's only there to facilitate change to make it easy to add more behavior. So it's the places in the middle of your application and the the bits that are changing the most. All right, Avdi, were you trying to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, sort of related to this, you know, this idea of kind of just, you know, spilling all the Legos out on the table and you don't really know exactly how you're going to be putting them together at first and you're just sort of, um, you know, fiddling around with it, seeing how things fall out as you get the initial functionality. I find that I, I, I do more and more on projects, I wind up only writing acceptance tests for a while at first. I don't write a lot of of unit tests at first, and I do it. Be- and I do do this because of you know because that's you know the the point that I'm at is is this you know figuring out how things how I'm going to want things to fit together, and you know and that there's so much churn in the internal design at that point that you know that I'd, I'd be I'd be throwing unit tests away left and right. I'm curious if 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 you guys have the same experience. If you know, if you sort of put a, a heavier emphasis on on early acceptance tests in order to be able to to rearrange things, because and 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 part of the 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 impetus for that question is is I do see beginners a little confused about you know they, they want to they're starting reasonably because a lot of people are talking about unit tests. They're starting unit tests very early, but then that's kind of tying them tying them to. You know, not not the implementation of those methods, but still kind of tying them to like the the organization and the internal design very early on. Speaking just for me, uh, yes, and the reason I I will write fewer unit tests at the beginning is usually because I haven't done enough object design. I've just jumped in and started writing code, and very often that's the right thing to do if I'm if if we're spiking if you know if we're in the early days of exploring the idea then i then i don't necessarily know what the concepts are but as soon as i have the time to do object design that's the time when i'll be 
writing unit tests and making sure those objects work properly. So, yes, but I'm I'm never very comfortable with that. It, I I always kind of smack myself about because it, I've not done enough of that design up front. I've just jumped into writing code. So yeah, and I know Cucumber's own code base suffers from this problem a little bit because um, we went bananas, <laughs> bananas with Cucumber, uh, just playing with writing acceptance tests to describe every single bit of behavior of Cucumber. And hey, you know, we're all experienced programmers. We don't need unit tests to give us design feedback. And actually, frankly, some of the internals of Cucumber are really a bit of a mess because we weren't writing enough unit tests. We weren't getting enough design feedback. So there is that thing that acceptance tests definitely give you lots of room to play around with the design. But I think, again, you need to be careful um, not to just keep playing around and throwing the Lego on the floor and actually remember that at some point you need to, you need to build something that, that other people could work on and maintain. Mm. A lot of times I will actually, in those early spiking efforts, uh, just uh, forego the tests altogether. Um, that <gasps> Yeah, I know, I know. But me that's, poking that's, around... That's fine, that's fine for spikes. The, the, the output of a spike is estimated stories, not code. Right, right. It's the... Ooh, it's, I'm trying that. to figure out what the... You know, how does this hook together? How would I even do this? What would this look like if that did that? You know, yeah. and, and I, I'm thinking out loud. So a test has no value to me because a test is to lock that, right, in place. It's that... Okay, so this should do that, and this proves that does that, right? And I don't want any locks. I, don't, I want to be able to say, okay, that's really stupid. Actually, what I should do is, and totally change my mind, and then test hinders me in doing that. So there's one more, one more thing more I want question? to say about acceptance. Oh, can I just say one more thing about acceptance tests? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In the middle part of the Cucumber book, we build a, a really simple application, and we, and we write a scenario and what I did when I was writing that was um, the first iteration, so the first time the scenario goes green, all I've built is a domain model. And the, the second iteration, so we make the scenario fail again by wrapping the domain model in a web interface and then make it pass again. And it's exactly the same words in the, in the scenario describing exactly the same behavior, but by using different code in the step definitions, we connect it to the first time to the domain model, and then second time we sort of step outside of it further out and connect the prongs to the whole actual end-to-end -end web interface. And it really struck me as that's the kind of that's the really key behavior of uh, of hexa it's like hexagonal thinking is to think if you write your acceptance tests, could you connect those acceptance tests just to the domain model? And would they still be true? So are you describing behavior or are you describing the implementation of that behavior? So, you know, I click this button or whatever. Matt and Kevin, have you done any experimenting with uh, SOA? We've been talking about that a lot on Rogues lately. And I was just wondering, do you think that leads to like a better hexagonal approach? Because it basically forces you to write the adapters for your services and such. I personally haven't. Uh, but I am currently exper experimenting with CQRS, which is Ooh, so are we. kind of similar, kind of different. Okay, uh, it's the idea def of total definition. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's the it's the command query command query oh, command resource query separation. separation. Yeah, yeah. So 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 you have effectively two different apps. 
one for writing stuff to the database and one for reading stuff. And you have two different models, and, and um, it's a lot more SOA than hexagonal, if you like. CQRS stands for Everything Interesting is Asynchronous. Yes. The team where I, uh, James, quickly, the team where I was working when we first got into Cucumber, and uh, we went all the way to a three-hour acceptance test run, the, uh, they actually blogged very recently about going down. And in fact, they, they managed to get it up to 15 hours um, and took it and have recently taken it down to 15 seconds. And they have done that by pushing the behavior away into services, which they stub out. Uh, Is that there's a, there's a so Songkick? Yeah, songkick.com. So that's where yeah. I was working when I first got into Cucumber. Those blog posts are absolutely excellent. Yeah, I, I really recommend it. If you're interested in this subject, they, those guys are uh, living the dream. Yeah, we'll make that uh, link available in the show notes. Yeah, they're absolutely excellent blog posts. You should, everybody should go read them. All right, well, now I really am going to cut us off. We're, we'll get into the picks. Let's start off with uh, James this week. Okay, so a couple of quick picks. Um, first technical one, uh, have a look at Ziki if you haven't already. It's just a, a pretty neat uh, kind of console environment on steroids, I guess you would say, uh, and, and how it lets you uh, call commands and edit them and mess around with them. Uh, there's a really good video about uh, what it's like, uh, and I will I'll put a link to the straight to the video in the show notes. But uh, Ziggy is kind of backed by um, Emacs, I think, and um, to me it, it it feels very Emacsy in places. So, uh, anyways, it's kind of cool. Check it out. Um, I'll beat you to that pick. Yeah, that's right. I saw Josh say that in the thing. <laughs> oh well. And uh, just for the record, it's not Emacs based. It is. It does have uh, an Emacs UI. Uh, ah. But there are other other UIs. Ah, I got you, got you. It it it'll be too late for the listeners by the time they hear this. But there's a talk on it at RubyConf. Right. So, yeah, there is a so, talk. So on so, it. so 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 maybe soon there will be a video on it that they can watch. I was going to say I'm pretty sure Confreaks is recording RubyConf. So yeah, oh. the reason to the reason to check it out, I think, in my opinion, is um, it's kind of mind expanding, right? It may cause you to rethink parts of your environment, basically, is the reason I recommend uh, watching it. But yeah, Avi was ahead of me on that one, so that's a duplicate. Uh, it's okay. I, I think I am the only one who didn't pick Sandy Metz's book, so there you go. I was allowed one duplicate. Um, <laughs> this, this does not count as a put, as a pick of Sandy's book, just so we're right. just I didn't pick the it just then, either. All right. right. Exactly. And for my non-technical pick, um, there's a awesome TED talk on being wrong, uh, which is just totally great. Uh, you should really go watch it. It's hilarious and entertaining, and and it talks about you know what it's like to be wrong and how we are often wrong and why that's a good thing and how, how about really about how we should embrace that. Um, and uh, you know, being programmers that we are and often having the ego problems that we do, it's a uh, it's a great, great video. So uh, check that out. It's good stuff. Those are my picks. We don't have ego problems. Everybody else just has problems with our egos. That's right. Yep. <laughs> All right, Josh, what are your picks? Okay. Uh, well, uh, RubyConf, which I'm going to be hopping on a plane to fly to soon. Um, and I just, I just want to say that it's, you know, 
it's going to be a week later when everyone listens to this, so all the sandy hurricane stuff is going to be passed. But there's a lot of people who aren't going to make it to RubyConf because of all of the impact of the hurricane. And I just like want to tell you all I miss you. And, and I know that a lot of people got uh, hurt a lot more badly than just not being able to go to a conference and you know keep things in perspective. But uh, yeah, sorry, everybody's not going to make it there. Anyway, the... So I, I have a, a bit of a rambling pick here. <laughs> uh, off to a good start, I see. Uh, the, so uh, I, I picked recently the um, FridayHug.com, which the folks at, I think it's pronounced Kamita, Kamita uh, put together as a Rails Rumble project a year ago. And they were good enough to open source the code recently at my request so that we could have a go at it. And uh, I've been too busy to do anything um, awesome with it myself, but I had a vision that I shared with the Rogue's Ruby Parley list at, last week, and a couple people from uh, from the list, uh, to whom I owe great thanks, uh, Justin Campbell and Eric Trom, uh, stepped up and volunteered to help me uh, whitewash this fence, and uh, we now have rubyfriends.com. And, uh, yay! By time, yay! Yay! By, by the That's time awesome. you hear it, by the time you hear this, it will have been introed at RubyConf, and it's a it's a, a way to document community or the formation of community, and uh, so it's uh, like like Friday Hug. It's going to be pictures pulled from Twitter with hashtags. So uh, you know, if you have a, a Ruby friend, you know, maybe someone you just met at a conference, uh, you can you know pull out your iPhone or Android and take a photo of the two of you together and tweet it and hashtag it Ruby Friends, and it will show up on the website. And the moral of this story is that you should join Parlay so you too can do Josh's work. <laughs> yes, the most, Im that's most the important. The most important detail from this story is we officially have minions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one step up from fans. Yes. <laughs> oh. So, anyway, uh, when do we get hench people? Hench yeah, people. That was there. politically correct. You have to pay yeah. ten character points for uh, for hench people. Yeah, we need we need we need more minions, and then we can upgrade them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, th uh, thanks to Justin and Eric for making this happen, and yes, I hope thank that, you. And I and I hope that everybody else gets a kick out of the site and that it uh, turns into something handy. Awesome. Okay, that's it for me this week. Okay, Avdi, go ahead. I I think I just have one pick, and it's not a programming pick, as I was waiting for the for the uh, water in my basement to dry up. My office is in my basement. I uh, took some time to uh, relax a bit and read a book, uh, a fiction book, which is practically unheard of these days. Uh, I, I read John Scalzi's Red Shirts. Um, I'm a big John Scalzi fan, and uh, Red Shirts, I think, is his latest. Um, Red Shirts is a uh, sci-fi novel about uh, those people on, on shows like Star Trek, who, whose only role in the show is to accompany the away team down to the planet's surface, surface where they are then blown up or eaten or uh, fall down a hole or you know, turned into some sort, of, some sort of hybrid monster or something like that. And uh, it's about a group of, a group of people in that, that situation, and, uh, and, and they, they come to the realization that this lifestyle is not normal. And that there is clearly something wrong with the universe. Cool. Nice. David, what are your picks? I just have one pick today. It's a hardware pick. So 
I'm kind of moving away from OS X. Uh, when I broke my arm, the accessibility was such a problem um, that I ended up discovering that a Linux computer accessing my Macs was a better keyboard driver than trying to get OS X to drive my keyboard and my foot pedals correctly. So I ended up, uh, I've been I've been flirting with switching to Linux for a while now, and I just, I mean, Apple makes sexy hardware. I just, it's just really hard to get away from that. And Asus has introduced a, a ZenBook Ultrabook, um, the ZenBook Prime. Um, I have the UX, I'll put it in the show notes, I've got the UX31A DB71. That's the, their high-end 13-inch uh, ZenBook. It's a solid competitor to the MacBook Air. It's three less than three-quarters of an inch thick. It's under three pounds. Um, the battery lasts five or six hours. Um, it's got a full 1080p HD display. Okay, the 13-inch Retina is like 2600, but the 1980 uh, by 1080 or 1920 by 1080, you can see the pixels, but you have to squint, and that's good enough for me, especially as my eyes get older. So what I found is a $1,400 computer that outcomputes the MacBook Air that um, I don't have to pay the Mac tax on, which I like. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. Other people think it's gorgeous because it's got that sleek, tiny, tiny form factor on it. And it makes it uh, painless to switch to a Windows dual boot uh, Linux. Um, the days of trying to figure out uh, if your laptop will run Linux apparently are pretty much over. People are telling me on Twitter and IRC that, nah, you just get Linux and plug it in and it goes. And that's largely been the case. I plugged in Kubuntu and uh, up she came. And it absolutely is wonderful. I'm absolutely loving it. And I started a stopwatch. This pick has taken two minutes. Now, I'm done. All right. I think I'm the last of the regulars to go, and then I'll let our guests go. Um, my first pick is something that David showed me this morning that I thought was just hilarious. And that is uh, oh dear, ghostsingles.com. <laughs> and uh, if you go over there, what what... I mean, it's the the whole thing is kind of funny, but and this was put together by Randy Taylor, who's a friend of Dave's and I. Um, but anyway, um, you have to go into the chat room and you have to be mm -hmm. part of the chat room for a, a little while. Uh, it's just it's it's really really funny, and uh, that's all I'm going to say about it. But it's it, yeah, it was terrific. And then um, my other pick is I was poking around and I ran across a GitHub repository that is related to a tutorial out there on how to build a membership site using Rails and Stripe. And it's been put together by, um, it's, it's in the Rails apps repository. Um, I'm not sure who's responsible for it. It looks like Daniel Kehoe or something like that. Anyway, the tutorial is like heck along and really interesting, but more interesting to me was that they have most of a membership site together. And so I, I was going to dig into that, and I, I want to give a shout-out because it looks like they're uh, contributing both kind of the basic app for something as well as giving a tutorial for people who want to learn Rails. So um, I'll put a link to the repo in the show notes, and then you can go and, and, and look at what else is there. Kevin, why don't you give us your picks? Okay, sure. Um, I've got two for you, which I hope is okay. The first is kind of technical, kind of not, I suppose. Um, it's a book called Metaphors We Live By, by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. And it's the popular tip of a big 
research iceberg. Lakoff has this thesis that in in our infancy we learn difficult and new concepts by constructing metaphors, um, and that um, most of our complex thinking is metaphorical. So, for example, um, he he deconstructs all our common language um, in metaphorical terms. So, for example, we we think of time as being a road or a journey. We talk about um, looking ahead to the future, putting the past behind us, bringing meetings forward, putting things off into the future. And it's all metaphorical language based around that journey or road. So it's fascinating stuff. And Metaphors We Live By is the kind of popular introduction to that. Uh, it's a great read and thoroughly recommended. Um, and great f- um, fodder for if you use the XP practice of system metaphor. Once you've read the book, you you look at your own language and vocabulary in a completely different way. Thoroughly recommended. Um, my second pick is the Paleo Diet, also called the Primal Diet, the Caveman Diet, the Stone Age Diet. It's the idea of um, only eating pre-agricultural foods, so no grains, no vegetable oils, no refined sugars, only things that hunter-gatherers could eat, so meat, roots, nuts, berries, leaves, fish. I switched to this, um, I was ill, seriously ill a couple of years ago, and I switched to this diet, and as a result of doing this, I discovered I had a gluten allergy, which I never knew about before, which had explained, suddenly explained magically an awful lot of symptoms I've been having for the rest of my life sort of thing. So I've lost a lot of weight, I'm healthier and fitter, and I think probably the diet has contributed significantly to my health in the last couple of years. So that's my pick. That's awesome. That, that, that's great. Ke- Kevin, I, I've picked, um, I, I have a niece uh, who is an author. She, she's, uh, she and her boyfriend do the uh, Primal Palette uh, website. Uh, it's a paleo blog and they have this uh, oh, yeah. Make It Paleo cookbook they came out with last year. So they, uh, I'm excited. She's she and he are, are going to be visiting me next week, and uh, they're going to be cooking a lot for me. I'm sure. I've got that book. It's terrific. Oh, so very thank cool. them from me. Oh, I will do that. <laughs> terrific. Okay, Matt, what are your picks? <laughs> right. So uh, Kevin, just having knocked uh, wheat, I'm going to big it up. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm going to give Kevin a tool for uh, being able to still eat bread but he can have wheat-free bread if he likes. So I love making bread. It's one of my favorite hobbies. Uh, I live a long way from anywhere. I used to live in a city where I could buy really nice, interesting bread, and now I live in the middle of nowhere, and my local shop sells really dull, crap bread. So I learned how to make it myself. And uh, the resource I used for teaching myself was the River Cottage Handbook number 3, so all of the handbooks by River Cottage are really good if you want to learn about making preserves. They've got one about that. But the bread one um, just worked really well for me as a geek. It explains exactly how the process works, about what you're doing to the dough when you're kneading it and you're changing the, the gluten structure. 
Um, so it's a really good book, really explained to me how bread making works. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. I highly recommend making bread. It's a, it's, a, it's a great sort of bringing a little bit of the wild into your kitchen. It's great fun. Uh, so that's my first pick. My second pick is Loose Leaf Tea. I've been practicing tea-driven development for years. I love drinking tea, um, but I only recently uh, made the switch from bags of Earl Grey to loose leaf tea, and my word, what a whole world it's opened up of delicious tea. So yeah, loose leaf tea is my second pick. I'm, right now I'm drinking orange dulce, which is a black tea flavoured with, uh, as you can probably guess, orange. It's very nice. So that's my two non-technical picks. I've got a pick... A technical pick, which is Web Machine. So I just started playing with it yesterday. I, I heard about it uh, a while ago, and uh, just a, I started a little side project yesterday, and uh, just picked up Web Machine. And it's a really interesting uh, framework for dealing with for, for writing a web server of some sort. And I'm curious about. Uh, it's like a completely blank slate, basically, for. Uh, writing something that surfaced on the web. So I'm interested in the context of this conversation about hexagonal architectures, having an app that's decoupled from the concern of being on the web, um, what I might be able to build using Web Machine, because it really, um, it just does web stuff and doesn't try and do anything else. So it's a really blank slate. Uh, so that's an interesting one. And uh, lastly, a uh, little product placement I thought I'd big up the Kensington SI600 presentation remote um, because uh, I did a bit of digging around a while back to try and find a good presentation remote. If you've ever tried to use the remote that comes with your Mac to do a presentation, you'll probably realize that uh, it only works about six inches away from the, the Mac. Uh, and this is a really good remote. You can just plug it into any computer and it just seems to be able to immediately tell it what to do. Uh, it doesn't matter which way you're standing, it works. So, uh, yeah, that's a nice little product. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, we are doing uh, Pooter. <laughs> I just think that's funny. Anyway, um, it's Practical Object Oriented Design in Ruby as our book club. So uh, go pick it up. Yeah, and, and read it. We're going to be talking to Sandy in January, if I remember. So, uh, anyway, uh, other than that, I don't think we have any announcements. So we will. We'll wrap this up, and we'll catch y'all next week. Kevin thanks, and Matt, thanks for Matt, being here. Kevin, for thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. Thanks a lot.